Hi, and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Amelia Miranda Williams, the assistant editor here at Stylus's UX office. Joining me today from London is Anna Sulan Massey and Zoe Ajonia. Anna has previously worked on Stylus's food and beverage team, and she's also an academic, journalist, and artist whose work examines the interplay between food, identity, community, and culture. Zoe is a writer and cook and multi-hyphenate entrepreneur whose work focuses on celebrating her Ghanaian heritage and introducing the country's cuisine to others. Anna and Zoe, welcome to the show. Today, we're going to be addressing the not-so-subtle racism that pervades the food industry, and we'll look at why it's critical that brands work to foster more inclusive and ethical food culture for all consumers and eaters. So, Anna and Zoe, I know that you are collaborating on a seminar series about decolonizing the food industry at the moment. Could you tell us a little bit about the conversations you've been having and who you've been talking to? Do we need to perhaps establish what Black Book is? Um, yeah, because please tell us about Black Book. So, so Black Book is uh, a platform for promoting diversity in food systems. Uh, that's kind of like the top level of what it is, but it has a very big sort of vision and purpose behind it, which is to be a global platform for representation for Black and people of colour for people who don't normally have the access to networks um, or, or indeed get the visibility they might otherwise deserve due to white supremacy, to yeah. just put it bluntly. <laughs> and uh, so Black Book is a thought leadership platform, a consultancy service, uh, a mentoring and business strategy uh, sort of accelerator. And then in its uh, final version of itself, it's also an agency for talent. So a global agency for talent. And the conversation series, uh, Decolonizing the Food Industry, was really a move for us to, to start meaningful conversation about what the problems are with like-minded people and people who have been affected uh, by um, well, systemic racism in the industry. So we're having conversations around sort of really big subjects that we think are important uh, to have, but mainly to that we wanted to lead those conversations and not have the, the industry tell us what they think the problem is. Rather, we wanted to reverse that scenario and disrupt it in that way. Um, and I think I'll pass the mic to Anna. One of the, one of the uh, great things about these conversations is it gets to unpick some of the complicated things that people, um, are experiencing in the various places within uh, the food industry. Because obviously the food industry isn't, you know, monolithic. There are so many um, jobs and roles and people within it. And of course, uh, black and, and people of color are also not a monolithic group either. And so there's really specific things and concerns and details that need to be looked at, talked about and investigated. And this sort of eight week series, with topics, a different sort of focus each week. Um, and it's super global. So we've had Amanda Yee, who's in Copenhagen. We've had um, lots of people from the States as well. So Tunde Wei um, and Stephen Southfield, as well as, yeah, as well as obviously the UK. <laughs> yeah. And so the hope for the series is from the conversations, what we hope to do, and it's, it's really important to mention that uh, you know, each conversation 
the purpose of it is to find solutions. So it's not just to spend an hour and a half bitching about what's wrong, which would be really easy to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but also to sort of come away from that with some takeaways. Okay, well, what does the future of food look like for, for black and people of color? How can we create uh, new systems if, that, if that's what needs to happen? How do we uh, create systems laterally or how do we change current systems? So, yeah, that's what we're working towards and we're going to be establishing and at the end of that, we'd like to be sort of potentially making a manifesto for the industry, um, sort of best practice guidelines, kind of top level stuff, but a document that has purpose and usefulness. And we want to do the, um, the series also in New York. I'm kind of in the process of setting that up at the moment. And we're potentially maybe even going as far as Australia. Mm. So we really want to be making it a really, really global conversation and Black Book is really the conduit for those conversations, but we're trying to encourage everybody worldwide to, to engage with, with us and to be part of the conversation so that we can, well, as I say, make meaningful change happen. Excellent. Yeah, the global ambitions are really fascinating. And obviously this is an issue that I think everyone in the industry understands at some level, even if they are being silent on it or being complicit in it. But how do you think about introducing people to the concept of decolonizing food if they haven't maybe approached food from a political or social justice standpoint before? I, I think one of the things about um, the word decolonizing and, and is, re is really about storytelling. Mm -hmm. And what it is is about trying to um, decenter and, and create multiple layers of stories. So at the moment we sit in uh, stories get told around food. And I mean, stories from marketing, you know, right from the sort of production side of things as well, um, is very centered on the white lens. It's very much about um, what the global North is doing. It gets all food sort of gets um, uh, referred to, from a European standpoint. So we have like French food or Italian food and then it's differentiated, everything outside of that and a few other things gets differentiated to that. So decolonizing is about changing a narrative, decentering a narrative, making sure that there are multiple narratives, that food isn't singular. So I think that's sort of the first entry point is to try and think of whatever foods that you're looking at or talking about and, and not putting them within another or not putting them within the norm. I actually think, I mean, that's a really good question. And I think the answer varies according to who the people are mm -hmm. who are receiving the information, to be honest, because, um, you know, what, what's been apparent with the talk so far is that the people like at least 60%, I would say, probably more of the people attending that, uh, the live session, the, the, the live webinar, are people in the industry. So these are people who have been stirred recent, recently by events and are trying to, to consider ways of, you know, reshaping whatever it is they do, whether it's the language in their house style guide or whether it's their diversity hiring policies and things like that. When it comes to perhaps consumer level, I think there's a bigger piece to do there because there is such a, a latent uh, sort of blindness uh, to the fact, well, to what decolonization means or mm -hmm. the fact that we live, you know, the, there's, the bigger conversation obviously is the understanding that white supremacy exists, whether you see it or not. And decolonization of food exists whether you see it or not so it's a little bit about trying to show those people through the conversations the ways in which 
that is happening so that they can understand. So we're just trying to be as inclusive as, as possible. Um, at the moment, our focus is on industry um, because, you know, until industry change the way they do things, we can't really have a conversation with the consumer. Mm-hmm. And I think most of the industry understand that there's a problem. I think the challenge is getting them to deal with the problem in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, in particular with the talks, is that, um, you know, there is there is obviously an audience, which is a consumer and things, and, and, and producers or brands or people within the industry aren't realising, aren't trusting their audience and their consumers enough, you know? Like, people are actually up for learning and wanting to know more, and they're not... Uh, letting that happen a lot of the time within the industry because there's a, f- a fear and an insecurity about telling a wider story or, ta- or, or, or looking at things in a different light. Um, but that's one of the key things that have come up almost every week is, is trust your audience. Um, so when you do have, as, as Zoe was saying, like the idea that the industry has to do its work to be able to get to the consumer and to be able to get to a point to, to, to sort of have a wider conversation, but the audience are there ready to have it. Um, and, and being able to trust that. And so what do you think it's going to take for this discussion to, you know, leave the industry and become embedded in food culture at all levels from, you know, people who are going to fine dining restaurants to someone who's just buying a recipe magazine online at the supermarket? People in power have to, have to really, like, listen to people who know what they're doing. I mean, <laughs> so going back to like this idea that you know why we started Black Book was because um, change needed to happen, and we, are, you know, the thought leaders and gathering so many people who have the knowledge and how this change can happen. So have that ability to kind of help create structures and change things as well as within our own spaces, but within within other people who are actually interested, so brands and companies and things like that as well. And also just add to that is that. Um, you know, Anna and I and Eileen and Fozia and Frankie and, you know, all of the panellists who we've had on so far, and there has been a a great uh, breadth and variety of voices there. We are all people who've been discussing these issues for like many, many, many years. Um, So it's kind of almost a fabric of our lifestyle. Do you know what I mean? So so there is this third way, if you like, in that sort of living decolonization, like in in the living of it ourselves is kind of an example to consumers. I know that sounds kind of a large grandiose thing to say, but for example, like through my businesses like Ghana Kitchen, it's like the narrative around Ghana Kitchen um, in our pivot recently has been all around decolonization to help people sort of you know, drill that into people's head that this is a thing and we want you to help us change it. And you know, my social media account and Anna's social media accounts are always talking about this stuff. So, you know, if consumers, you know, they're not all watching us, obviously, but if more of us are having these conversations online in a more general way, in a more kind of, it's part of our lifestyle kind of way, then that's really the best bet for us at the moment to, to in, you know, to get infiltrated at that sort of grassroots level. Yeah, and it's, and I think that's, as I was saying, it's like this, there are a lot of people who have been doing this work and have been doing it for a long time and it's it's so part of their everyday I mean for me I you know like as a journalist um I say to PRs don't send me press releases unless they're of people of color or women I'm not interested in the white chefs white male chefs 
um, because, you know, I've got Instagram, I, you know, get the newsletters, whatever, I know what's going on. But then also what that means is that if a, if a PR company really wants to, me to know about their white male chefs, they have to work really hard for my attention. So that, like, just that action is really decolonizing the way we're thinking about who's important and who's, who's, who's my time important for. Um, and so if, you know, like if people want to do that work and they want to change and they want to meet these new audiences that are out there, um, it's, it's not that hard to find the, the sort of experts, like not only us, obviously, who've been doing the work, but there are a lot of people who've been doing this work for a long time. So I think, I think if, if people want change, they can do it and they can get it quite easily, but they do, they do have to do the work. They have to bring in the experts to say, um, you know, your diversity hire isn't just like a token shallow diversity. You know, it's not just about a range, a range of colors on your team. It's about how does that structurally enable different people from different backgrounds to um, succeed, to thrive in a work environment, to therefore make changes with the products and that get developed or the food that gets cooked or the, you know, like, because if you don't have an empowerment and you're not thriving in a workplace, you're not going to be able to stand up to your head chef or whoever, or, you know, to say that, well, actually that's, you know, culturally appropriating or that's like <laughs> wrong or et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. And also thinking about, you know, foods like quinoa, turmeric that have become so popular in recent years, but really through this white lens of white chef culture and wellness culture. And I'm curious if you guys have any ideas, you know, when we're looking at these niche ingredients haven't yet been discovered by white consumers, like things right now we're seeing spirulina and moringa become more popular. How can brands and chefs introduce these ingredients to people in a way that honor their roots and don't, you know, take away from the people who are growing them and exploit them? Did you say how can white chefs do that? No, not necessarily how can white chefs, but how can people do that? How can brands, who should do this? This is your, your, what you're doing at the moment, Zoe. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, I'm glad that you brought wellness into this conversation mm -hmm. as well. Actually, this is a big uh, piece behind why I've done the pivot with Ghana Kitchen. So we've just re opened an online shop so that people can buy some of the ingredients that I, I use regularly. And I tell you what's behind that. There's lots of different things. So the whole like the lens with which wellness is sold to people is very white centric. It's a very white gaze. Also, it's a very middle class gaze. Um, and, you know, just the whole narrative around wellness and, and the types of recipes and the ways in which ingredients are used uh, and words like, you know, trends, just all of it's very white gazy and very exclusive to, the, you know, let's say the diaspora or just the general non-white population. So something I wanted to, to fix there was giving access uh, to, to really healthy ingredients. And I've been banging on about superfoods from West Africa for the last 10 years, actually. Um, such as moringa and baobab um, but the problem has always been that people will say or, or even some of it's it's more sort of everyday staple ingredients like alligator peppers or guinea peppers like you know I would say that almost 90% of the ingredients I use from West Africa have insane health properties but people don't know that so we have to you know give them the information right so something I did yesterday I did a takeover of Nigella Lawson's Instagram page for example and I just littered her page with information about West African ingredients and spices and then diverting people to my website, which is selling all of those 
uh, ingredients and uh, you know inspirations and information. So that's how you do it: is you we mm. take control of giving the information and direct people to also buy from us, buy buy black rather than buying from the big corporates. And there's another sub conversation I'm having on the side, which is. You know, it's about bringing the wealth back to the continent of Africa and not, not giving it to Unilever and not giving it to Monsanto and not giving it to other in-between, you know, small to medium companies who are doing that work of trying to capitalise on the riches of Africa in this third wave of colonialism again, but kind of sanitising it and wanting to put Western labels and standards around it so that it's consumable for the West and the, you know, North global economies. And I really want to be in the middle of disrupting that and encouraging people to buy these ingredients from black owned businesses, because otherwise we won't have any black owned businesses anymore that are able to provide those ingredients. So, so fundamentally, that's how, you know, that, that's my solution is right, start my own shop, I'm going to buy straight from the farmers, um, I'm going to give people the information, I'm going to give them the recipes, and then they can buy it from me. And then, you know, that money goes straight back to to the farms in Africa where we've been growing it. So, and I would, you know, and another fantastic example of this is the Aspera Co. So, which do a similar thing. I mean, I'm sure you've heard of them um, with Indian spices and stuff. And, you know, I think that's, I strongly, strongly believe in encouraging uh, chefs of color if they're working within it, in that way with ingredients from their country of origin, their home of origin, is to really try hard to source at root. Like, don't get the, um, all of that bullshit for a bit word, I'm sorry, I've got a foul mouth in the middle, just get that out of the way and give their wealth back, but give the information to the consumers as to why you're doing that. And then that lights people's, that's inspiring actually for people, you know, because it's like, oh, right, I get it now. Like there was all these other parts in the middle um, that didn't need to be there. Um, so yeah, let's pay the people who grew the food, you know? <laughs> And I think one of the, the responsibilities, like, so obviously I'm not in a position to have a shop or do that kind of stuff. So as a like journalist or a storyteller or, or people within, I don't know, in different spaces, it's, it is, it's telling that story that, that and supporting that story that Zoe's sort of talking about is putting the people back into the ingredients. Because I think a lot of things that happen within the sort of chef culture and kind of heroism around the chef and restaurant thing is that you actually strip the people in the chain out of it because it gets focused on this very singular, um, which is also a very colonial structure of a very singular um, victorious person. And actually food is, is this chain of so many people. And I think putting the people back into that and so that when whatever, however you're using the ingredients and, and, and uh, you know, we can be influenced by lots of different ingredients is making sure that you know the journey that that ingredient has come on and that that yeah like as you say like discovery is like this so ridiculous to think that the this global north has like discovered you know <laughs> these ancient <laughs> ingredients yeah I'm, I'm sorry to have used that word <laughs> like why can't i think of something better yeah i just add to that also that you know in food writing which is something we've been discussing in recent weeks on the conversation as well you know uh, we, we've spoken a lot about how our, because Anna's mentioned bringing people back into the food and it's, you know, I find a lot of the time when I write introductions, to, I have found historically when I write introductions where I'm trying to reference where, the, you know, give a bit more 
information about the ingredient, the story behind it, um, there's quite often a lot of limitations editorially because they, they only want you to write 50 words that's basically just going to tell people to eat that food, right? But if people have never heard of yam or alligator pepper or whatever it is, there's a, there's a really big piece missing like that you can't fit into that recipe then where there's no context, there's no history of tradition, there's no um, story of how tradition is now developing into new African cuisine. There's no kind of, there's no room for that narrative. Um, and nor is there room for the context of who I am and my relationship with it. So, you know, these are some of the problems we're talking about is that, you know, for white chefs, um, I mean, even a white chef cooking Thai food, they don't feel the need to have that explanation and yeah. to have that sort of, uh, sort of signposting to where this came from. Because, well, I'm not gonna say what I think their motivations are, but they, they, there's clearly not that, uh, thought in their mind whereas for me it's really important to tell people to give the context of the ingredient or to give the context of the inspiration because uh, it's part of the whole story of food is like where does it come from where has it gone where is it going and who are the people involved in that, that this whole conversation so you know it's, as we said like you know it's so many different layers of the cake there's there's problems and issues and it's really a creative ongoing creative process as to how you unpick that and how you dismantle the system to be able to do it the way you want to and yeah that that's another thing that, that as you're talking about like one of the things that's um came, has come up a lot is this idea of structure you know the structures that are in place at the moment don't allow us to tell the stories with any nuance um so even if there was a white chef cooking Thai food and he wanted to explain why that meant something to him he wouldn't be able to do it either you know like and that so that so at every level we're stripping back you know the only thing that's allowed that fits within that space is a is European food that we all know of because we've had that conversation over and over and over and over again for centuries you know so that's why we only need 50 words because we had it for yeah so all the structures are just not there to support this kind of decolonization um which is what needs to change yet yet <laughs> <laughs> and so, so i'm curious also too you've mentioned it a couple of times your Ghanaian kitchen now it started as a pop-up in london right and now it's evolved could you tell us a little bit about that uh, yeah, it started actually with a, a pot of peanut butter stew outside my front door during a festival 10 years ago. Uh, that's where the germ for Ghana Kitchen was born. And then it, a year following, I, 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 did, I turned my house into a restaurant and called it Zoe's Ghana Kitchen uh, over that same festival weekend. And basically, you know, look, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen <laughs> was something I had never anticipated doing, actually. The universe just made me do it. <laughs> So I was like cooking for people for fun. People loved it and word spread very quickly. So it grew very, very organically, very quickly um, with not much intention behind it other than having fun. And like, this is cool. I get to share this food and people are having a great time. And then I started an MA at Goldsmiths in creative and life writing. And I thought, wow, I could just do this to support my way through the MA. And then I don't have to take any, I don't have to work for anybody else. Um, and then, so it turned into a regular supper club and then into residencies. And then I tried to move to Berlin and I took a kitchen residency in Berlin. Then I was all over the German press for 
a hot minute. And then uh, I was kept getting catering inquiries in London. So I thought, okay, this is silly. I should just come back to London instead of flying back to London every two weeks to do a catering gig. Um, and I, I had to sit down and think seriously about what, why people loved it so much. And that's when I created the mission statement of bringing African food to the masses and starting an African food revolution, because it seemed apparent to me that it was absurd that I was getting so much attention around West African food when it was a huge continent and I couldn't understand why there wasn't more people cooking this food. So, you know, it's evolved over the years and it's, you know, it's, I've moved around the world with it, taking it to Russia, Berlin, all over the UK, obviously, lots of different places in the States. And it has operated mainly as kind of a traditional catering, mobile catering with street food and supper clubs and residencies. And I had a restaurant for a bit in Brixton. Um, obviously when COVID happened, I mean, I was in the process of having a shift anyway, to be honest, but COVID kind of sped up the process of me deciding, right, okay, this is the universe again telling me what I need to do next and wellness and the ingredients and stuff. I just fast forwarded everything that I was going to do around that. So that's where we are now. We're, we're basically at the early stages of building a wellness brand around a wellness brand with an African lens. And it starts with a, a spice shop. Excellent. <laughs> Excited, excited to see more. Now, you mentioned that you people wanted you to act as a voice for all of West Africa and all of African cuisines, which is obviously ridiculous. Um, and obviously, the answer here seems like people just need to go out and find more African cooks to discuss their own cuisines. How do you think this is going to happen? I mean, is it through conversations like you're having with Black Book? You know, what needs to change? first steps for the industry yeah well you know a lot of the time like you know when 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 you've seen in the uk when you've seen uh, the guardian or whoever it is Time Out or somebody you know, quite often journalists come to me and say oh can you recommend this can you we need to find x y and z so i've done that a lot over the last 10 years kind of feed people people uh and often I've done that knowing that, you know, if I give them this name, that person will now replace me on that type of conversation because we, mm -hmm. I, I know that there's only one black face at a time <laughs> in the press around food. Um, but that's fine, you know, we, we rise together. Uh, how that's going to change now, I think this is what Black Book is about, you know. it's I'm sure you've heard of Equity at the Table. Yeah. And, you know, that's been transformational, uh, I think, for black and queer people and you know marginalized people and women and I think this is what we want to be doing at Black Book for the food industry very very specifically uh being able to be a resource for for that kind of thing absolutely uh, but we're not going to give it we're not going to give that away because you know that's that's data that's a database that's like information and um you know we have powerful networks across the world between us all so we are very well connected, we're very well networked. Um, and so, yeah, you know, people can come to us and ask us and we will definitely help them, uh, but we're not gonna do it for free. <laughs> you know, part of the, the core values of what we're doing is, you know, we, the problems are at a high level are the lack of visibility. So we stand for visibility, the lack of uh, equality. So we stand for equality, the lack of equity. Um, so we stand for equity and um wealth creation wealth creation which is honestly the biggest problem for people of color in food because 
so many times our talents are undervalued, our voices are undervalued, our experience is undervalued. Um, and, you know, I personally have experienced it myself. You get a shit deal compared to the white person with less experience and who has a better network than you, essentially. And uh, we just want to put a stop to all of that. So, so that's why I keep saying you've got to pay us, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it is a collaborative approach. We're not trying to, we're not trying to piss anybody off and we're not trying mm. to... Um, and it's, it's also like recognizing that the, the, the knowledge within our network um and expertise and you know like as you're saying Zoe it's like that gets underestimated continuously um so it's, it's really like advocating for that I think is quite a key yeah yeah exactly I mean I think that also makes me think of you know in restaurants how there's the case where if you try and open up a high-end Chinese restaurant a high-end Indian restaurant first of all it has to be pan China and pan India and then people complain about not about paying that much they don't get as many michelin stars as they deserve um which is obviously you know a very elite area of the industry but it's uh quite over the top so <laughs> one thing uh here at stylus we've been talking about a lot about gen z and how 48 percent of them identify as non-white in the u.s so they're the most multicultural generation to date um they're increasing awareness around global foodways and flavors so are you guys optimistic that this new generation of eaters can push for change and you know help create a more equitable industry? Definitely. I mean, if you look at the the, the protesters, um, you know, the people who are going out on the streets now, they're a lot younger as well. So I think there's a, a bravery and a voice and a willingness to to move in that direction. Yeah, I mean, what's great about Gen Z is, I mean, they pretty much stand for everything that you know our slatch key kids stand for mm -hmm. <laughs> they're younger they have energy <laughs> and they're motivated to, to, for action because it's their lives that are going to be affected so you know it's very very encouraging um for sure and you know what what i hope to build is like you know when we when we started black book kind of actually a couple of months ago what i said was you know we could wait we could be waiting a hundred years for these systems to do the work necessary to to have meaningful change or we could start doing the work now and be able to mm -hmm. at least hand over to the next generation uh, a template or some kind of model um that they can build upon you know and i think that's really what this is about it's about a legacy of fairness and uh, in representation and diversity building and yeah, and I think Gen Z's, as Anna's already said, all the reasons why, but they are exactly, they're, 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 do, they're doing it, and um, that's really encouraging. And actually, something that you say quite often, Zoe, as well, is like this idea of um, like black and non-white being a minority is like kind of totally wrong, because of course it's the majority within the global sphere, right? So if you think about then Gen Z, who are probably like a lot of diaspora, um, and, and that they're already tapped into a global audience, also then of course via social media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, all that kind of connections that are happening, they're, they're already in a position of being super global and being, and then the sort of minority people within those spaces are actually the majority because the world is predominantly 
non-white. And honestly, those that audience, if we can call them an audience or consumer, is uh, they already understand what decolonizing the food industry mm. means because they already are very highly aware, like they see it all the time because of how they identify and because of their own intersectionality and because of what they care about. They're very, very aware of these systems um, already, actually. So the real problem, actually, is people our age and older who don't, who have just been comfortable in these systems for so long and don't really have much impetus or desire to see it change and who, who won't even notice that there's a problem because they're so comfortable in their privilege, you know? So, yeah, Gen Z, we're all up, we're all up with yeah. Gen Z. Come on, Gen Z. <laughs> well, I think at this point, maybe we should just leave any Gen Z listeners who are listening to go out and do their work and everyone else can go <laughs> further educate themselves. Um, and thank if you. Work for Black Book, please get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> thank you both so much for joining me. This is a really fascinating conversation. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I hope you will join us next time for more future thinking from Stylist. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.